When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact Podcast. I'm Justin Ponder, Chief Information Officer with Uplifting Impact, and I'm excited to be hosting you today as we dive deeper into our journey to make the world more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Today, I'm very excited to be talking with Dr. Dakota J. Irby. Dakota Irby is an Associate Professor of Educational Policy Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His research examines how equity-focused school leadership improves Black children and youth's academic achievement and socio-emotional well-being. He is the author of the book, Stuck Improving Racial Equity and School Leadership, and co-editor along with Charity Anderson and Charles Payne of the forthcoming book, Dignity Affirming Education, Cultivating the Somebodyness of Students and Educators. Dr. Irby's research is applied through his work with Deroot Consulting Cooperative, where he supports leaders and teams to create conditions for anti-racist organizational learning and continuous improvement. Dakota Irby, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So a question that we ask everyone, all of our guests, how we like to start off is, what brings you joy? Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, uh, it's a good starting question. I appreciate (laughs) having the opportunity to start there. Um, What brings me joy is music. Um, I love music. I love making music. I love listening to music. Um, I listen to music when I'm in the shower, when I'm cleaning, driving. I just love listening to music. And I also like making music. Um, I'm a guitarist and a songwriter. Uh, And I also enjoy, um, you know, get joy from being with my family. Uh, my children, my uh, wife, my family in South Carolina. And then I love to be outside. Um, I really love just, you know, nature, uh, being in green spaces, you know, grass, trees. I just really enjoy being out in nature. So I would say those are three things that bring me a tremendous amount of joy. And one of my kind of jokes is that if I can have a family, a guitar and be out in the woods playing my guitar (laughs) with my family, that's my happy. That's my happy place. You're set. (laughs) So what is it about those three things that brings you joy? I mean, like joy usually helps us remember who we are at the core and what we value most helps us reset, recreate. So what is it about those things that help you? do sometimes what can be the difficult work. I mean, I read that impressive bio. That sounds like oftentimes it can be a lot of work and often like you meet a lot of resistance. So what about that? Those locuses of joy help you with that more difficult work? Uh, I think um, a lot of those, the three areas, I think help me maintain a sense of humility. Mm. Um, I'm always fascinated by like, what people can come up with and do musically. I mean, it's a language that's universal and kind of just, you know, if I come up with something, sometimes I'm amazed at what I was able to come up with, a melody or, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like, how did this happen? It's a, it's a Where did this come from? Where did it come from? And then I think family always keeps me humble because 
to my family, I'm, you know, I can do things that are important and great to the rest of the world, but they know me at the core and they're me. They care about me for not what I'm writing or what I'm accomplishing, but for who I am and that I'm just here. Um, and then I think that nature is also something that cultivates humility because I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and I'm like, I'm really small. Um, <laughs> or, or if you go to, you know, you realize how small you are in the whole scheme of things. Yep. And um, if you're out in the ocean or, you know, you're on a boat and you look at how expansive the water is, like you realize how small or I realize how small I am and how small humans are in the scheme of things. And, you know, if you look at the stars and really think about nature, like we're a speck of dust in the in the context of this whole thing. Yet um, we mean something to people uh, and, you know, we have emotions and so we exist. But it's just it's, so I think some some something about the uh, the joy is from the humility of knowing how infinite and big the world and the universe and the language of music and those sorts of things are while also understanding that even in that vast expanse, I'm still important. Yeah. And I'd like to like maybe dig a little deeper in that because humility is such an important thing, but it's one of the things in this walk that very few people talk about because in order to face so much adversity, to face so much resistance and opposition, it becomes almost second nature to emphasize confidence mm. and audacity. And even your own work talking about dignity, affirming education, it seems very obvious to like, people who are already convinced that they're small and they need to be convinced that they're bigger. So how do you get people or how do you balance that need for dignity, which some might say is like, Oh, you, you, you get bigger and bigger also with that need for humility, which seems on the surface to be emphasizing smallness. How do you balance those things being humble, but also confident? Right. Right. Yeah. I don't think that the two are kind of like, uh, as I was kind of describing them, I don't think that they're, like mutually exclusive. I think they mm -hmm. kind of go hand to hand, but I think the important thing is that humility, especially in relation to nature, music, which is universal, right? A universal language. Like you can play music or tap your feet or dance with anybody. Right? <laughs> so it's, uh, and enjoy music with anybody. You don't have to have a shared language. It cuts across socioeconomic status. So in a way, um, some of these things that, you know, uh, I've mentioned, even, you know, family, um, most people have the benefit, I mean, of, of family and, you know, my wish for the world would be that everybody has people who love them, whether that's, you know, uh, blood relatives or fictive kin or community and that sort of thing that they could call, you know, family, put under that umbrella of family. And I think that that kind of understanding that you are small but part of something big is kind of like dignifying and that mm. you are you're still a small part of it right um right. and so i think that it helps it helps people develop a regard for other people right uh. um, there can be a kind of over confidence um which is different than you know dignity right like mm -hmm. to treat people with dignity um and move through the world understanding that nature has a particular kind of dignity, not human dignity necessarily, but a particular kind of dignity, which means we should treat nature and treat the environment in a particular kind of way. Cause we're, 
we're one and part of it. It needs yeah. us. We need it. Right. That harmony. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of how um, I think of it. And I think about music in a very similar way. It's a, uh, you know, multiple people can be a part of it. Right. Like mm -hmm. if, you know, I'm performing the person smile is a part of the musical experience or right. nodding a head or tapping a foot. All of that is in sync. And um, to be a part of a small part of that greater whole is a dignifying experience in my and how I think about the human experience. Right. I think absent yeah. of all of those things is it will be very hard to understand what my humanity is about without mm. thinking about myself in relationship to others in relationship to the environment and to the relationship of the human experience which i think music captures in a very kind of universal way um and so all of that stuff i think is where you have where humility gives you a sense of purpose and and power and so it's not necessarily so much about um being big it's about recognizing one's purpose and connectedness to other people and other things as kind of purposes and uh, you know as well and picking up on the idea of connection most people on this podcast come from s specific diversity equity and inclusion backgrounds in hr dei officers or part of dei committees in companies corporations other organizations and your approach is a little bit different you focus on education. So how important is diversity, equity, inclusion to you and the work that you do in the education space? And what value does it bring to your work specifically? Yeah, um, it's, it's really important. Um, you know, I have thought that, you know, what, what is now called diversity, equity, inclusion has always been important to me. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've thought about it more in terms of, and I think about it more in terms of equity as the center of what I'm primarily concerned with. And I could talk a little bit about that, but, you know, it's always been important to everything I've been doing. I can remember I was in, uh, I tell people this and they're just like, you know, you, you were an interesting kid, but when I, was in high school, <laughs> I was in a, a program called um, Youth in Government. And it was a pro, it was a program where high schoolers took over the state capital for a week in South Carolina. Wow. So, you know, you learn how to basically, you learn how, how the legislative process worked at the state level. And I remember the bill that I introduced multiple years in a row was to reduce the sentencing for crack cocaine to be mm. on par with powder cocaine. This was in yep. 1994, 95. And this is where, <laughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm in high school and I'm like, and of course my bill failed miserably every time, right? Uh, but these are the things that I was thinking about even when I was like 14 and 15, because I would read and I would say, this doesn't make any sense. like. Crack cocaine comes from powder cocaine. Why are you being punished more severely for yeah. a very small amount of this drug substance versus, you know, um, you know, less? And then, of course, there's issues. Of, it's race. It's about race and racism. Mm -hmm. And so I was always interested in, like, how can this be made more equitable? Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's always been the kind of core of what I've been interested in is to make the world, make how people are treated um, more equitable, uh, which I think then lends itself to diversity, which is for me about recognition and recognizing who's already in the room. Hmm. Um, 
but they it's can't be in the room different. until you have the equity that allows them to be in the room in the first place. Right. Absolutely. Right. I think it's about, um, and then I think the inclusion piece is that because equity is about questions of justice and fairness at the core. And so if you focus in on issues of like, what is equitable and trying to make things equitable, it gives people the self-determination to figure out whether inclusion is even what their priority is. Mm. You know, separation and sovereignty could be an outcome of someone, you know, who has the power to say, I want to self-determine to be sovereign. I want to self-determine to have my own space, my own affinity spaces. Um, And this goes back to the issue of um, equity. I mean, the issue of um, humility is it also helps me understand that other people should have a similar right to self-determine. And so once we have, because I think equity is really about access to power, influence, right? So that you can more fully participate in a society and deliberate about the ongoing question of justice and fairness. And if you can participate in that question, that conversation about justice and fairness, then allows you to think about what you want to be a part of, what you want to be included in, as well as to make the determination of like, I don't have a a desire to be included in this particular kind of environment and why. And if you make that determination, then the question becomes, what are the, what are viable alternatives for um, us to pursue? So that's how I kind of think about it. I really um, think about equity as the center. And that justice, I mean, that inclusion and diversity can, you know, be accomplished through an intense focus on equity of access, opportunity, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think it's really profound because so often folks in the DEI space assume inclusion and belonging is the ultimate goal. And you're saying, no, we need to spend more time with the equity because inclusion and belonging might not be the ultimate goal of the underrepresented groups. Like, no autonomy and sovereignty is what I want more than to be included at your table. I want my own table. Yeah. 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 And I think part of it is just the opportunity to be able to have that conversation as well as, and this is where the equity piece is important, the resources and power Mm. to create whatever that alternative might be. And so digging deeper in this centering of equity, what are some of the primary ways that you look at that the educational system, maybe educational entities, schools, higher education, or organizations in general, what can they do to be more equitable? Like if I'm involved with a school, or maybe if I'm not involved with the education system at all, I'm just in a human organization, like in my company, what are things that you see that maybe specifically at schools that they can do to be more equitable? And maybe how that translates to, hey, I'm not in education at all. I'm I'm in HR at my company. What are things that you see the best of hits for becoming more equitable? Right. You know, the big one that nobody likes to talk about, you know, is straight up is providing not even adequate, but substantial resources to groups of people who have not had access to resources in the past. You know, uh, I'm an advocate for reparations. I think that could be in the form of land. It could be in the form of stocks, right? Like get, get <laughs> If we're talking to people who are in HR, give people in big companies, give them stock op, give people of color stock options in the company as part of their benefits package. We really need to think about providing the material and financial resources. And I'm saying material and financial resources, especially for organizations, because 
you know, there's symbolic resources. There's things about recognition and culture. Like people can do that on their own. This is why it's important to have those spaces and those affinity spaces. But there are certain things that, you know, we can cultivate in our children and say, you know, we want you to be proud. We want to make sure your history is recognized, X, Y, Z. But an HR person in a company can say, we're going to give you stock in that company. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yeah. that's something that uh, that could be done. So I'm really a big proponent of making sure that people have more than adequate resources. So if we're talking about higher education institutions, my approach is tuition is covered. Housing yeah. is covered for companies. If they work there, one of the benefits could be if you're a person of color, if you're an underrepresented person, you're ch- if you work here for five years, your children get a uh, um, you know college savings plan. Mm-hmm. We'll contribute to a college savings plan for your children. All of those different sorts of things that are very easy to do, but people want to focus on again the issues of diversity, recognition, making you feel good, like you want to be here. That's all good, but yeah. I feel like groups should do that already. In their affinity spaces, and whether it's show me receipts, <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying. Whether yeah. it's a religious institution, whether yeah. it's you know parent groups, clubs, we do a lot of the cultural affirmation work already. Mm. The area where we're most locked out, where businesses, organizations, HR people can really make a difference, is providing. You know, and I don't even want to. I mean, you could say in that language, it will be benefits. But it's really the material resources and financial resources that will repair the generations of harm, disinvestment that this country thrives on. Mm. Um, And so a lot of it is like very simple things. College tuition, those sorts of things, I think, are, are, are very basic things that could be done. And those are those are things that consider issues of equity, which is about, again, fairness and justice. It's not fair. You know, if we think about um, I come into an organization or, uh, you know, a company, I'm working. My colleague who is white, who's next to me, is working. We have the same salary, but we don't have the same wealth. Uh, We don't have the same, you know, so if you're thinking about those sorts of things, then uh, this person, you know, their, you know, $50,000 goes to their college savings. Or it goes to the, yeah. (laughs) My $50,000 goes to paying off my loan. Right. Because I was, didn't, because my parents didn't have to pay a mortgage necessarily because my grandfather got the GI bill, whereas your grandfather did not get the GI bill, even though they fought in the same war. So your family was always struggling to keep up with the mortgage. Whereas if, oh, grandpa bought his house through the government GI bill loan for like, 20 grand, we paid that off generations ago. So now all the money we've made has been to college tuition, whereas now generations of color are paying it for tuition. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's how I think about it. Those are very concrete things that um, it frustrates me that aren't a part of the conversation mm. in the way that they should be. They are, but they're tangential. It's mostly people of color advocating these things, but they're, they're easy to do. Yeah. It's very easy to do. Yeah. So those are the kind of things that I think are really important. And but again, they go to the question of what is fair um, and what is just. And unfortunately, most people would say that both of us making fifty thousand dollars is where the company or the organization's responsibility in terms of fairness ends. Mm. For me, that's not taken in consideration 
uh, equity, a, a deeper kind of understanding of equity in terms of what companies can do if they don't think that the boundary of what they need to do to create fairness is just pay equity. Yeah. So you've given us a lot to think about regarding equity and like that's really broad, valuable, rigorous things for us to think about theoretically. So I'd like to like for like our last question, kind of zero down on your book and give you an opportunity to talk about stuck improving racial equity in school leadership and really like what led you to write this book and what are some of the key strategies to improve leadership and education in addition to the things you've already enlightened us about? Yeah. Um, so Stuck Improving stems from a research partnership that I engaged in with a district that was struggling to, um, you know, create the kind of educational environment and learning opportunities to support its black and brown students who were an increasing percentage of their school's population and a relatively rapid um, increasing percentage. So, um, this is a school community that at one point in time was, you know, uh, this kind of, sub, you know, suburban white community. Uh, and then they started to have Latinx, you know, black other students and families moving into their community, largely for economic to pursue economic opportunities, as well as to pursue opportunities in what was regarded as a, you know, high quality school district. And the district and the people who were in it um, struggled to figure out how to support those students. Um, so I joined the project when, um, you know, ironically, they asked me to come in and do some consulting work. And this is a this is a humility thing. <laughs> I, once I got a sense of what was going on, I was like, I don't honestly know how to help you all well enough that I would feel I could consult you and take your money. Mm -hmm. um, however, uh, I could be a learning resource if you all would be. Um, willing to engage in a, a research partnership show, we can kind of go through the process together and I can learn from what you all are trying. So that started back in 2013. And we worked together for about five years. Uh, and I was at the school on a regular basis, helping design professional development, professional learning opportunities, doing some coaching, working with leaders in the school, department chairs, working with teacher leaders, um, to really try to figure out, like, how can we make this school better serve its black and brown students? Um, so that's where the book came from. Uh, and I wrote the book because as I was engaging in the process, I realized that although I was focused on learning from and with this one school, that when I would talk about what I was learning or what we're doing, it resonated. And the problems that the school was, uh, had, you know, were facing resonated with districts, you know, far beyond just this one school in this one district. And so I wrote the book to support, you know, folks who are engaged in racial equity work but feel like they're stuck. And the basic argument that I make in the book is that there is a particular kind of capacity that an organization must have in order to actually even do the work. And so basically what I do is in each chapter, I identify a different um, organizational capacity. So one, for example, is uh, black and brown influential presence. Another one, for example, is um, what I call um, uh, uh, curated white uh, racial discomfort. And so mm. this is a particular kind of discomfort that white people experience um, and that they don't have the capacity to deal with a lot of um, issues that they will confront when trying to achieve racial equity because 
they haven't had the experience of the discomfort, whereas people of color have been experiencing stuff that they were all the time. Right. (laughs) Even if you didn't, you couldn't name what it was. You can get to, you know, you get to, you know, the age 30, you're like, this is what was happening when I was in ninth grade. Yep. Wow. Right. So we have a well of experiential and racial knowledge that we can combine with what we learn when we read in books to have a different understanding. And we also have a different um, emotional uh, capacity to deal with issues of race and conversations about race. And so what I argue in the book is that a lot of what school leaders and a lot of what the DI practitioners and consultants are asking in particular white communities to do, they actually don't have the capacity to do it. Mm. And so what I write about in the book is that if we start from the premise that many white organizations and white communities and white people don't have the capacity, then it requires that we think about a capacity building approach Mm. where we're thinking about like black and brown influential presence as something that increases their capacity. And so now they see the value of like this person's experiential knowledge, racial knowledge is something that will help, you know, increase my capacity. So having those people in the organization and having the ideas of black and, and brown folks in the space actually um, increases the capacity of the organization. So it's really a very kind of different way of thinking about equity because it focuses on organization at an organizational level as right. opposed to what the individuals need to do. The book is about what capacities need to be in place in an organization so that it can succeed. And no different than if you wanted a school to take on remote learning, we right. see that when we moved into the pandemic, schools that had a relatively high capacity to use technology and the resources, the technological resources, yep. they had a very they were at a very different place to be able to transition in school communities that didn't have those resources. And so just like we can think about technological resources, I'm asking us to think about what are the racial resources that must be present in the organization for it to actually do the work that we want it to do. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. Well, I'm sorry, we, we're out of time now. I was going to keep talking about this forever. Well, thank <laughs> you good. so much, Dr. Koda Ari, for being with us. How can our folks continue the conversation and remain in touch with you if you've like, Enlighten them the way that you have me as I want to learn more. How can they get in touch with you? Yeah, for sure. I'm on Twitter, which is where I'm the most active at uh, Dakota Irby, D-E-C-O-T-E-A-U-I-R-B-Y. You can also find me at DeRootConsulting.com and StuckImproving.com. And then I also have a Twitter, which is focused on Stuck Improving, and it's at Stuck Improving. Uh, I have a name that nobody else has. So if you just Google D-E-C-O-T-E-A-U, last name I-R-B-Y, you will find me. I always have said that I can't do anything that I shouldn't do because I will be very easy to find. (laughs) So if you want to make sure your child keeps their nose clean, give them a name that nobody else in the world has. (laughs) I I saw Dakota today. He was running around doing X, Y, and Z. Like, oh, no. Can't say it was the other one. Quite different different than James and Muhammad, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And we'll be sure to also put that information in our show notes. So one last time, thank you very much, Dakota Irby, for sharing your knowledge with us. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And we're also glad for all of you that you tuned in this week for the episode of Uplifting Impact Podcast. We need more people to help us uplift the impact. And in order to do so, be sure to share this episode, comment on it by going to our website at upliftingimpact.com 
or provide your thoughts directly to us through LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact or Justin Ponder and Deanna Singh. Until next week, keep uplifting the impact. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.